You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. Hello, everybody. It's me, Adam Hawkins, and I am joined by my co-host, Tamarcus Raglan. Ty, how you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to be here. I am, I know I say this every time, we use the word excited a lot, but I mm. am truly excited to talk to you and to be joined by our two guests to talk about something I think is really important, and that is institutions. Yes. Um, institutions, are our trust in them is at an all-time low, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's time in this election year uh, and and with the state of institutions being what they are, I think it's a good topic to sort of explore. What should our attitude be towards them? Why has trust declined? And what does that mean for us going forward? Right. And in order to get the experts mm. on this show. Top dogs. Top dogs. We had to go out of our way. And we went and found, I don't know if you've heard of him. His name's Adam Griffin. We found Adam Griffin to come and mm. join us. Adam? Yeah. Thanks for finding me, guys. I felt really lost without you. Well, we've been we wondering where you were. You. Yeah, we've been lost without you for years now, but we found you. <laughs> you I'm were right so outside. Glad you found me. <laughs> waiting I've come been here the in. whole time, guys. I've been here the whole time. Just waiting for you to let me in. Adam, Just knock and the door will be open. Adam Griffin is pastor of Eastside Community Church in East Dallas, and he is the podcast extraordinaire host of the Family Discipleship Podcast along with his wife. Um, so please check that podcast out. Who else do we have with us, Ty? None other than the one, the only, tried and true <laughs> pastor extraordinaire himself, Kyle Worley. Ooh. Kyle? Ooh. Wow, what an intro. Thank you. Kyle, true. Kyle comes to us from Mosaic Church in Richardson, and he is also the head of, well, he does so many wonderful things, but one wonderful thing he does is host the podcast Knowing Faith, which mm. you should absolutely mm. check out as well. Um, he has many wonderful things to say about this topic, as does Adam, and we are excited to talk together, guys. Thank you for joining us. As the head of Knowing Faith, I am really glad to be here. I'm honored to be here. <laughs> the head of Knowing Faith. Only you, Kyle. Yeah, just me. Just me. Uh, but I am, I am really delighted to be here with two Adams and Tamarcus. It sounds like a sitcom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is. It basically is. Well, maybe we could dive right in, guys. And, and the way to open it up is just to say, when we use the word institution, there is sort of a technical definition for that. Um, what what are we talking about? What do we what do we mean when we say institutions? And what is their aim? Why why have them? Anybody want to jump in on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, when we think about institutions, we're talking about some sort of collection of people that are mobilizing resources towards a shared end uh, that typically has an organizational flair to it, meaning there's typically some sort of centralization of those people or resources. There's usually some sort of systemic architecture that accompanies it, meaning it's more than just a few people with some good ideas and some money on the table. Typically, there is an organizational structure that is a complement to advancing some sort of shared mission. Yeah. And I think the thing that's like helpful to think about when we think about institutions is, is what you just said there, the, sh- the shared aspect of it, yes. it transcends maybe um, a charismatic leader or something like that. It all, you also get 
the ability because it's transcends maybe the lifetime of, a, of an individual. Typically, mm-hmm. the goals are long, long range, not always, but they can be. When we talk about institutions, um, there's there's different kinds or maybe different ways to think about them. Uh, you have civic or governmental institutions. I think about, you know, people are talking about the FBI as an institution. Uh, that that would be one for sure. You have more benign things, an institution like the Library of Congress, I thought about. <laughs> you also have universities. Those are institutions. There's private institutions. You think of banks, big yeah. banks, like a Goldman Sachs that's been around for a long time. You have religious institutions like denominations. You have um, even public health, hospitals, things like that. So those are just examples. That's a way to maybe yeah. break it down a little bit more. Um, so so the reasons can be myriad. They can be, you know, it, but why um, why do they form? Like what, I guess maybe to drill down a little deeper, yes, for some, some end, but why have they been useful in public life? I think particularly uh, in our, in our own country, um, specifically where, you know, historically we've been one where we don't like to lob all the power to the state. Um, institutions form as a kind of structure where you get cooperation that is um, unforced, like you said, among li- like-minded individuals. Typically, it, it's going to be bound together by some set of rules and beliefs, some sort of ideal um, that's going after the same end. And so it it creates a way where you're able to efficient efficiently meet the needs of a community um, by those who, you know, for all purposes, will be experts in whatever that field is, right? Sure. So you got, you talked about hospitals having, you know, doctors and nurses and, and whatnot who uh, can fully focus on like, hey, we are set to do this specific thing. And it's like those, as basic as this sound, it's like because of the definition of what it is, it actually allows them to be effective. If you try to have one entity that was a bank and a hospital mm-hmm. and a school. It's like that gets really complicated and weird. Um, and so, um, which I think is important when you gave the delineation, because so often when we just say the word institutions, typically people probably have like one or two in mind. And typically with the distrust, it's in something that they're not fond of. But it's like, actually, there's a ton of different ways that institutions exist, and many of which do serve to uh, add some sort of good in the public sphere. Yeah, that's really helpful. You know, if Adam and I were like, uh, or if I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go out and build something, you know, a cabin, house, <laughs> make a cake, make a pizza, I can do it by myself. But if we partner together, we might be able to do it more effectively. That's mm-hmm. like the functional nature of why institutions exist, because right. you can accomplish more together than you can apart. But there's also a formative goal for institutions. Our institutions aren't just what we build so we can do something. Our institutions are what we build so that we can shape ourselves and shape mm-hmm. others. So there's a, and I think when we think about an institution, they ser- they should either, or it's either, either or, or both and, serve a formative and a functional role. They should be accomplishing something through that cooperation and they should be forming in those who are participants in it, something within them. Well, I think uh, what you guys are describing as an institution maybe is revealing in me a little of the distrust 
uh, because you guys, the way you guys are describing institutions sounds so idealistic where it's mm. like, well, we have this combined mission. <laughs> we have this goal. We can do more together. I'm like, man, most American institutions in my mind form because financially it makes more sense to do this together. And we're going to have the ability to go further financially. It's going to benefit the people who are, you know, forming it or, or down downstream from who's ever doing it. It's going to be tax benefit to do it as a corporation, <laughs> as an institution, instead of by ourselves. It's going to be the profits will be better to do this together than by ourselves. And part of it is, I think, because of the lack of trust we'd have in an individual, mm-hmm. you form an institution. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody just stood up and said, hey, follow me in this direction, people go, oh, I don't know about that. But if a guy was able to form or incorporate something, even if he's the sole employee, people are more inclined to say, yeah, I'll support that. I'll get the behind that. I feel a part of that. It's official. But truly, mm-hmm. they might be forming because of uh, a financial benefit to do it. Now, I do believe there's philanthropic work in institutions that yeah. is idealistic, is beautiful. I believe there's missional churches and universities and hospitals that are formed for beautiful reasons. They can do more together than they can apart. But I still think a lot of institutions that begin right now are because it makes the most financial sense. And it's it's in the hope of profit that institutions form. Hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, th- I think you're right. And, and I think um, that's not all bad. You know, I right. I think part of what I heard you say in that, Adam, is that um, there's an individualism in there, but there's a there is the the downsides to individualism. Maybe that we form institutions in part to kind of spread control a little bit, right? To to to, to defeat the the downsides of the individualism that you're talking about, mistrust. Sure. Like if you like if you just have an institution, then you have. Or if you just have an individual, maybe you have a cult. Right. You know, you have a, a a leader who everybody is just getting in on this person. Yeah. If you have an institution, you have a united mission instead of a person. And not only is there a benefit in the checks and balances because people are imperfect, but I think there's a legacy that can continue whether that person continues to be part of the institution or not. So as Kyle and I were talking about planting churches, we planted separate churches at the same time. One of my hopes in starting this institution was to create a family, a, a corporate gathering that if I were to die, pass away, resign, whatever, that this institution would survive me. It's not built on me mm-hmm. and it's not built for me. Mm-hmm. And so a healthy institution, you hope, is one that's created that has some lasting power that's going to accomplish right. something. And but th- yeah, you're exactly right, Adam. That's really well said. But this is exactly and Adam, I may begin Adam, other Adam. Yeah. Adam Adam with the glasses, Adam yep. with the good hair. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, shots fired. Uh this is exactly where institutions have broken down is they're no longer functional and informative uh, institution life, institutional life, or at least American perception of institutional life is largely performative, meaning that the institutions mm-hmm. no longer exist to serve formative uh, functions. They exist to be performative platforms. And, um, you know, even, uh, even I think the most optimistic perspectives on the viability of institutions moving forward, I think of like, Yuval Levin, Andy mm-hmm. Crouch, Hugh Hecklow, guys who have written widely on institutional life and believe in it deeply, really believe that the tailspin here is that these institutions are no longer formative and functional or formative in their function or functional in their formation. They're performative platforms. And uh, for that reason, they've literally abdicated their one responsibility. So let's step back and dive into that because mm-hmm. I think there's something... Um, let's like get on the ground there because I was about to ask you, Kyle, what happened? Did they stop uh, performing their function? Like, did they stop working or did they stop forming? Right. Did they stop? Did they lose their heart? 
you know, and it sounds like what you said is both. Uh, and instead they, they came to serve as a way to maybe project power or project image or project something, right? As if they were still working properly. Uh, yeah. And so I guess my question is, is like, let's, what's an example off the top of your head, if you have one that you could use where, uh, an institution's broken down and now serves maybe more of a performative function? Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, yeah, dude. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing cause it's like, yeah. Okay. What's an example? Uh, <laughs> I, okay. Uh, well let's go with, um, let's use an easy one. Let's use the NBA. Yeah. I love the NBA. I, I love watching professional basketball and listen, I, I think LeBron is maybe the greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm in the LeBron versus Jordan battle. I am very much a LeBron fan. Uh, but when we think about the kind of teams that pre LeBron NBA was able to produce, um, man, LeBron took a performative dimension to the way of building teams that has drastically changed the way that teams come together in the NBA has a lot less to do with building long, uh, long range developmental teams and more to do with, uh, free association of the top talent for the most amount of price. Uh, you think about like, think about the institutional nature of the San Antonio Spurs versus something like the Miami Heat. Right. That's a drastically different way of viewing a team mm -hmm. uh, and how to build a team, how to develop a team. So that's a popular level example. Think about the way we no longer see consistent narratives in musical artists. We don't think about albums. We think about tracks. There's a individualization. There's a granularity now. We don't see the larger picture. We are thinking and hot spots and seconds. But when it comes to institutional life, I think that it's really important to realize that it's tough to diagnose, okay, this is what happened across all institutions in exactly the same way. The failure of the American medical institution is very different from the American public school system and very different from the American government. I think a couple of core principles when we think about what do these failures share. The first one is that as you embrace greater identity uh, identity politics, you have less coalition building. And yeah. that movement of seeing uh, every self as an autonomous self uh, or as absolutely unique as a snowflake, um, then you, it's really tough to build coalitions when everybody is a radically free, sovereign, autonomous self. Mm -hmm. So that you might just say is a part of the modern problem of mm -hmm. have or hyper-modern problem of institutional life. I think what Fleet Foxes, you know, the Fleet Foxes, they yeah. have a song, Helplessness Blues. Yeah, uh, he sings, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake unique among snowflakes, unique in each way you could see. But now after some thinking, I think I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. Mm -hmm. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I was raised up believing I was utterly unique, but now after some thinking, I'd actually give up all that stuff just to be a part of something greater. That's hyper modernity's radical individualism. So you could say radical individualism has compromised the, the, the integrity and function of, uh, institutions. I think as an accompaniment to that social media, but it's really less social media. Social media is the superficial reading. It's what I would call hyper transparency. We think of transparency as an inviolable good that institutions that are hyper transparent are healthy. I, I disagree with that. Transparency is to serve a purpose and what it has served in an age of personality is transparency has served as a megaphone for performing who I am and not using who I am. Mm -hmm. uh, an, ex an example of this would be just think about like, if you just were constantly telling your wife, Oh, look at how strong I am. I'm so strong. Aren't you impressed by how strong I am? But when she needed help getting the groceries from the car, you're like, nah, save it. <laughs> That's performative strength. 
that's not real strength. Mm. Real strength is going to get the groceries from the car. It's using your strength. So when Mm. a politician comes out and says, this is what, this is what's happening behind closed doors. You think, oh, wow, look at this really transparent politician. We need transparency in our political process. The reality is, is that no, we don't. Transparency in a platform age is performative. It's not formative in nature. So I would say that hyper-modernity's radical individualism plus the performative ethos of a social media digital age have combined to create a, an absolute tailspin for the formative and functional nature of institutions. So that's a quick, those are some quick thoughts, maybe not quick enough. Well, I, something you you said when you brought up the um, the individualism and even the 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 move towards identity politics, I that was what was coming to mind when you was initially talking about uh, the performative nature. And I guess what I'm wondering is it is it the failures of institutions that led to distrust, and then in that case, people kind of moving towards a more individualism, or is there like this heightened individualism where we start to see a lot of um, scrutiny put on, because I think about, you know, a lot of people, you know, cancel culture in a way it's like, oh, what, this company doesn't support what? All right, well, then now we're we're done with them to the, to the sense to where instead of being more formative, you have institutions that are now conforming to the to the popular narrative and the popular ask of them and saying, OK, well, what is it that you're wanting in an institution? OK, well, we can be that so that we can survive so that we can still um, you know, I, I, I've heard some speak of it as like it's a trade off, like, oh, we'll perform and we get the appease. But, but that allows us to still be able to do our formative action. Like, is it is it is it one way or the other? Or is it a combination of both? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, that is because I think their institutions have certainly failed. Yeah. And but they always have had failures yeah, baked it's like, in. What, what's different now? And so what changed though to say what what allowed institutions to be less fragile so they could survive their failures like anything would mm-hmm. fail but you could keep but now failure leads to ruin or to I, I even just think about narratives too you know it's like in a individualistic age it's not just oh i want to do my thing it's also that like the underdog is the the hero now like um building something big is the man do you know what i'm trying to say mm-hmm. like like having like a like anyone who has, even if it's an institution and we were it, like to to say, hey, we built this really successful thing and it's amazing and look what we've done. The immediate attack in an individual hyper individualistic age, but also one that sees uh, sort of success as a vice it immediately sort of attacks and says you must have stolen. And I think this goes back to what you're saying. Like we've saw the failures, yeah. the failures captured our imagination. And then we say, well, you must have stolen, you must have cheated. You must have, you know what I'm trying yeah, to we say? We no longer see the good. I guess. So like, I was, I'm trying to think of like maybe a, a comparison. So like when I think of something like a hospital, I don't often, you know, and God forbid, but I don't, I don't often hear, you know, maybe you go and you get a misdiagnosis or, you know, they, they can't figure it out or something. Like, I don't then hear the response of like, we just need to get rid of hospitals because the, the good of a hospital outweighs maybe our bad experience. In the, like we know that this is something that is bringing a good. And I wonder in maybe in other cases where it's like there's a there's a lost sight of that. And so then when the when the brokenness comes in, it's like, well, what do we even have this for? We don't even need we should just get rid of it. All it's bringing is bad. Right. And it's like there's a disconnect. 
Yeah, I think there's, a, I don't know that it's different in some sense. I think there's been a sense in which that's always been the case that people lose trust in institutions or uh, individual failures affect institutions. I think what might be different is that it's pervasive, that it's like yes. a really common, that it's mm -hmm. everywhere. So maybe, now I've not been a part of former generations, but maybe a former generation, if you had a, a CEO or a pastor fail, they'd be able to say, well, you know what? He wasn't living according to the mission of that institution. He needs to go. And nowadays, if you see a pastor or CEO fail, they would say, oh, the institution he's a part of must be corrupt, must be awful. Maybe like uh, if a pastor fails, maybe the problem is what he believes, not just that the person wasn't following what he right, believes. Right. There's a kind of a distrust. But I, I think that might be an institutional change from past generations, but I couldn't speak to that with any level of authority. I do think what happens is we have selective canceling of certain institutions. I'll give you an example that I think is it maybe will help out metaphorically. So in the last couple months, a door blew off an airplane while it's in the air, right? Everybody heard this story. Mm -hmm. I think you guys heard this story. So what happens is the manufacturer's stock tanks. People don't want to fly. Any place that plane exists, people are not getting on it. Now, keep in mind, I think it's a very serious deal. Nobody died. Nobody got hurt. But the, the door fell off the plane. At the same time, all across this country, I guarantee probably even between the four of us, some car company has emailed you and said, hey, there's a recall on your car because <laughs> there's a serious problem. Somebody somewhere died because of this item and it needs to be updated. And everybody ignores the emails. Like, I don't have time to go to the dealership. <laughs> nobody for, nobody looks at the car company and goes, oh, they don't. They make bad cars. Uh, and people aren't blaming the car company because I got this email and now it's bothering me. But because somewhere a plane lost a door in which no one was hurt, everyone will freak out. Hmm. And so there's like this selective nature of like, well, what am I afraid of? Hmm. I don't think it's necessarily what affects me because in that case, the recall affects me, but the the plane ride scares me. Hmm. And so with some institutions, I'm never going to say the hospital needs to go away because I need the hospital. I'm never right. going to say public education needs to go away because I need education for my kids. But I might say, hey, this store, as opposed to that store, I'm not going to shop anymore because this is what their CEO believes. Or what's really easy is this church, not that church, this denomination, not that denomination. They made this mistake. I'm out of there because the cost to me is very small to reject them and cancel them. And I think because of the internet, social media has given a voice to everyone it's easy to get rage out of control at an organization, what, which by the way, this is one of the main points I wanted to make today. A institution is still people, mm -hmm, right? It's mm -hmm. still people, but we make it an easy thing to blame because then no one in particular is getting blamed. Mm -hmm. You're saying, oh, it's, it's that fault. I'll give you one more example and then I've talked too much, but so many, listen to politicians talk and how many times do they say, it's not the American taxpayer that did this, it's small businesses. It's the mortgage company. Mm -hmm. Well, who's small? Is it robots? Is it AI? No, that's people. <laughs> yeah. It's greedy people. And so we love to blame an institution and uh, kind of claim the innocence of the individual. Well, that's mm. real easy when we all look at ourselves as individuals. But when you're a part of an organization, you start to see how like um, like in, in my church, somebody could say, well, Eastside's doing this and they shouldn't do that. That's the church I lead. And I go, well, who do you think made that decision? Like you're blaming Eastside, but like at the end of the day, like I'm the pastor there and it's easy to blame the church. But your real problem is like, well, do you have a problem with Adam? Like, mm -hmm. let's talk about that. As we try to define the problem, you know, um, Kyle talked about the the two problems that 
that have popped up. You know, we've lost both the they've lost both the ability to um, perform their function and their formative nature or their formative function, um, and they've they've become performative. I don't know if I said that right, <laughs> but uh, and then we were talking a second ago and say, yeah, but how did that happen? Did mm-hmm. that happen because um, people started to get greedy within the organization did that happen because our attitudes in public life changed because of individualism and because of the internet um and and so trying to narrow this down and say like what's really happening what's really the problem is sort of hard it's this big collective thing though because what you said griffin was the pervasiveness of this i think what's different now is just the level of distrust everywhere that's what it feels like you know you've heard we've talked about on this on on our podcast before deconstruction and it's like everything is being deconstructed it feels like you know ty you talked about not blaming the hospital but certainly public health is under attack and public health is an institution you know if you think about the nih and you think about just any you know covid right that's all you have to talk about for two seconds it's like nobody trusts the experts anymore um you know i physics is under attack i was watching a um i was watching a uh uh documentary the other day that was talking about how you know physics itself is run by these uh you know run by a couple of elites within the institution and they've been marching towards string theory which you know hasn't produced anything but they won't let it you know everybody there's always some evil dude at the top you know or evil guy yeah. at the top who's who's breaking all the rules and is and i just yeah, it just it's 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 like everywhere I look, there is no, I, I can't think of an institution that's not under attack. I can, I mean, maybe you guys can. Like you said, maybe there's more local ones or something. But yeah, think about this: when you were a lawyer, and maybe they covered this in law school. Yeah, if you had to face a jury that was deciding between an institution and an individual, who does the jury normally side with? Well, the individual. Almost always, yeah, right? Yeah. So if the pharmaceutical company is being sued by the individual and you get it to a jury case, they know that jury is going to look at a person mm-hmm. and say, well, that person deserves something. Yeah. We can sue the institution because that's not people. That's a that's a conglomerate. Entity, that's, a, right. that's a thing. And so that's an easy thing to blame, an easy thing to look at and discredit, an easy thing to distrust. But because you have the, sh- like you refer to it, the shadowy figure, mm-hmm. the shadowy figure can be the bad guy. And that's very easy for us. So it's so easy to distrust. And the truth is, because we live in a world full of sin, there are true shadowy figures or true greedy boards or true greedy councils or greedy individuals who run institutions or have ideas that should be distrusted. So to an extent, like I'm with them. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but there's a lot of institutions I have put too much trust in before. Mm. And I'm with it to say, like, if, if they're not meeting their function or doing it the way they should, then yeah, I don't know that they should get my dollar, certainly not my trust. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, certainly there are broken institutions, like there are broken people. I think the question is, what's the alternative to institutions? Yeah, that's good. That That's what I was going to ask. It's like, okay, so yeah, there's, th- these things are breaking down. So what's the problem? You know, it's like, is it good? You know, okay, are they, are these, these evil conglomerations of people? Uh, or are these these dinosaurs that have lost their you know formative function uh, that need to go away? What what's the problem? Like maybe we do need to get rid of them. And I think we, yeah. you just named it though, Kyle. It's like okay, but what's left? And it's yeah. I'm gonna I'll let the cat out of the bag. Maybe there's others, but what it feels like to me is the alternative is either this sort of anarchy of of individualism, mm. or it's the state. 
and oftentimes I feel like it 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 you know defaults to more state just control mm-hmm. and yes. power, right? But I don't know, Kyle. What do you what do you think about that? Like, what is the alternative, dude? Like, where is it going? You know? Well, it's a it, it most of people's problems with institutions really stems from a naivety to power. That there is a naive skepticism towards power. Power is a bad thing. And if whoever has the most amount of power could not either have gained it through noble causes right. or, or it could not come from a noble origin. And even if it did come from a nor- noble origin, it's very unlikely that it'll be used for noble ends. When when you have a naive skepticism towards power, then the the solution to that, if you if if you disrupt institutions will not be um, that there will be more power for more people. There will be more power consolidated and fewer non-institutionally guarded people. Mm-hmm. So the problem, like a lot of people's problem with capitalism as a system is looking at individuals who have profited immensely from capitalism. You could say noble in method or not, and now seem to be able to run the gambit unchecked. Their problem isn't with capitalism. Their problem is with people who gamed the system effectively. So you refine the system. You don't blame the system for people who gamed the system. So yeah, listen, if you think that, man, it's crazy that we have such uh, insane wealth disparity. Listen, I'm not going to dispute you on that. If you think the solution to that is to discredit free market capitalism because some people abuse the free market capitalist system, then I'm going to tell you what you're going to get with that if uh, the history of communism is any example, is not more power and more resources for mm-hmm. more people. It's mm-hmm. going to be more power and more resources uh, consolidated to fewer people with no institutional guardrails. So I do think that when people say, hey, you know, I've got a real problem with the church. You know, I just don't trust the church. I go, okay, tell me, what's the alternative? And, you know, they'll usually say something about like, well, you know, we need to go back to uh, the, you know, a house church model. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you want to go back to a house church model. What would you need a building for that? Would somebody be paying the electric bill? Who leads that time? Does somebody send a text out? And you know what? After five or six pretty small steps, do you know what you end up having? A very small, (laughs) low frills institution (laughs) with a lot less safety and guardrails on it than Mm -hmm. maybe a more well-developed institutional control. Um, So, yeah, I I think that typically when people express concern about institutions, I, I share their concerns. I think broken institutions should be refined. But I think that the most... Honestly, I think the the best question you can ask somebody uh, who is like, I don't really believe in institutions. I think they're all broken, you know, whatever, 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 is just like, hey, like, what's the alternative, you know? Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Adam. No, I was just going to say, I think you're right. There's a lot of... No, can I... I'm sorry. Can I say one more thing? No, come on. Go ahead. Because I'll go ahead and like, just like, really overturn the apple cart with an illustration that I'm sure... Let's do it. Some won't really like, but, um, you know, over the last few years, there's been increased scrutiny on, let's say, uh, law enforcement as an institution. Right. And that seems to be well-founded, both in the history of law enforcement in our country and in some of the contemporary practices that seem to mark law enforcement. And listen, like every institution, it should be systematically and thoroughly refined to accomplish its stated ends in the best possible, safest, most vibrant and community building way. I agree with that in principle. But do you know what's a really interesting question is like, listen, let's just imagine, as some have called for, that you just abolished policing or law enforcement. You just got rid of it entirely. Do, Do you not think there'd be anybody 
uh, enforcing the law? N no, there would be. There would just be uh, people of immense wealth who are able to retain private security, who would operate with a degree of discretion, a degree of latitude that's not currently allowable and available because there is public law enforcement. You, you'd create a caste system where mm -hmm. one group of people would be able to retain the highly militarized private security and the large rest of everybody else would not be able to do that in any degree and would have no recourse. That's an imbalanced system. I'm not saying that we should not refine the current system. I'm saying that if your anti-institutional bias causes you to look at something like law enforcement and go, what well, we, we don't need reform, what we need is abolition, then I would go, oh, well, I think what you'll get with abolition is a power imbalance that would be far more problematic than what you're currently seeing and experiencing. Hmm. I think that's a clear illustration. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, even there's there's a, a version of that that we got to see um, when that area in the exclusion zone in Portland came about. I don't know if anybody sure. remembers that. Uh, yeah. I think everybody makes fun of it now, but what happened was they kicked all police out. Police didn't go into these blocks and then they had rampant drug use and people were being murdered and raped and those kind of things. Well, what did they do? They had certain people just start going around beating, beating the garbage out of people. And, you know, they weren't accountable to anybody and all kinds of bad stuff was happening. Right. Um, so yeah, we, we've seen it from both ends is, is right. kind of the way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. But what well, like, so bring that, bring that to the church though. It's like, um, because I think this is important, you know, we're pastors, we're all pastors on this podcast. Most of the people listening are belong to our churches, uh, or to a church. And there have been, I think lots of calls for, for reform. Mm -hmm. There's been calls for deconstruction. There's been calls to, I, I don't know, you know, with, with denominations either to leave or split denominations and those kind of things, like kind of getting to the nitty gritty, like when is it okay to like opt out though? You know, like when's it okay to say like is an, enough is enough, you know? Um, I think of prominent people who've left the SBC and just kind of said, I, I don't want to reform this. I think it mm. just needs to be done. Like, how do you, if, if what you're saying is true, Kyle, is there ever a time to bow out? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I think there are times to bow out of institutional participation when an institution has defied its own stated ends in terms of like its chartered arrangement or organization, when they're the means of affecting change within the institution's own governance model can no longer be leveraged or utilized. It, it's now basically insolvent, you know, because even if the institution is broken, it can't be refined according to its own you know, governance structure. So I would say those would be times if the institution cannot be changed. Well, now you have a very clear reason to leave because any institution that can't be changed is going to be, whether it is at present or not, subject or susceptible to deep, deep problems mm -hmm. of which there will be no recourse. So if an institution can't be changed, then I would say, oh man, that's a really bad space to be. Now, what most people experience is not an institution that can't be changed. It's disillusionment with the pace of change. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, And that's a patient's problem. That's mm -hmm. not an institutional problem. Yeah. So that's a you thing. It's not a them thing. <laughs> you might want it to happen faster, but uh, institutions are large. Typically, the institutions that we're involved in and frustrated by or delighted uh, are typically large associations or conglomerations of resources, power, people, spaces. And because of that, they require a lot of time to change. So if you want to make change, you're going to have to stick around. And if you don't want to make change and you want to leave, that's fine. But yeah. 
you'll end, you're going to e either end up walking in the graveyard of what only institutions can create because they died and they no longer can create those things, or you'll continue to reap the benefits from them because other people decided to stay and persist. But there is like the world around you exist because of institutions that existed before it. Yeah. You'll either jump into the game and help cultivate those things now you'll build new ones or you'll either walk through a graveyard of what they used to provide or you'll enjoy the fruit while it lasts that's it mm -hmm. i mean that that there is not anything else is uh is a delusion yeah i think i think on on top of that and this kind of goes back to what um adam was saying earlier it's like i almost feel like there's a need to make a, a distinction in terms of uh what you just described right where institution um kind of relinquishes or forfeits its um, de uh, defined end um, and failure of an individual within an institution. And I remember having this conversation with somebody, um, you know, of the many institutions that have had a person at the top fail for something. And um, the institution, you know, confronted the issue, addressed the thing, the person had to be, you know, whatever the punishment is, removal, step down, whatever it has to be. Um, and they were walking through their frustration, which rightfully so. And I was trying to, I was talking with them and I was like, you, you know that this is a part of a, like a healthy function of the institution, right? Right. To, for the institution itself to hold to the values and to, um, uh, the, the defined end that they set forth and say, this individual is no longer in alignment with that, nor helping move that forward. And so we're going to continue to move forward with the mission apart from this individual. It's like, that's what you want the institution to do. What's actually problematic is when an institution doesn't do that and yields to the to the individual or allows the individual to derail it from its plan. Then you want to then you start asking questions of are we going to change? Is this a change in course? Are we going to revert back? And it's like if th those are two different kinds of I feel like failing, right? The failing of the, the uh, of a person within an individual uh within a given institution and then the failing and drifting of the institution itself. Yeah. I think that's a good distinction. Uh, Griffin question for you, as we're talking about this, part of me wonders like are institutions even biblical? Like, like we're having this conversation on a Christian podcast. Like what, why, why yeah. are we talking about this? Do you, do, do you see in the Bible maybe even like places where people start coming together. I mean, I think it's maybe kind of obvious, but mm -hmm. I was just wondering if, if yeah, if, <laughs> where's your head go when you think of that? Well, I think a, a lot of what we're dancing around and, and a lot of what we see in our culture is a problem with regulation, right? It's either internal regulation of an institution or the reason the government gets blamed for everything is that the buck stops with who's the ultimate regulator, who's going to regulate this, this institution, this business, this, this market. And so we look to the government. And one of the words that is used for the elders in the church is that they will be overseers. It's actually a word that's also used to describe Christ, is that he's an overseer and shepherd. And then Peter describes in the same letter, uh, elders as overseers and shepherds. These people who, you know, regulate in the sense of keep out false teachers, protect doctrine, provide for those who are in need. Those are things that are done not by an individual, but by a group of individuals that we call the body of Christ. Mm. And while Kyle is the head of knowing faith, Christ <laughs> is the head of the church. And so while we can look around and say there's, you know, uh, so somebody maybe plays a foot, somebody plays the role of a an arm or an armpit, 
Now, Francis Chan used to say somebody in every church is the appendix. Nobody knows what they're doing, but if they blow up, they're going to kill us all. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, <laughs> that everybody plays a role in the body. That's my role. What we are is a is a collective, right? Yeah. But the hope is that the the ultimate regulation comes from God's word on who we should be. And that's the benefit the church has is there's a standard set, not by mankind, but by God. And so when you have a God who sets the standard, then regulation becomes a little bit easier because I'm not regulating based on my own authority. I'm not even regulating based on voters' authority. It's not a majority rule. It's a king, a good king, who will never die's rule, and Mm. therefore the standard is clear. And I serve in, in many ways as a mediator, saying like, hey, I'm telling you this because God has said this. I'm telling you this as an overseer of this church. I'm feeding not my lambs. I'm feeding Christ's lambs. I'm I'm shepherding not my flock. I'm an under shepherd of Christ in Christ's flock. And so the church has an advantage that other institutions do not, both that God started that church. He also started the family, by the way, if you want to talk about the institution of the family. But he starts the institution of the church, and he gives it an authority structure and some offices. But the standards, he doesn't just kind of leave willy-nilly to like, hey, however you guys want to do this. There's a real clear design for what it looks like to be above reproach and to work together without despising one another. And if you look at a lot of the sins that are warned against in the New Testament— They are sins that are anti-community. It's things like slander and malice and anger. And what are those things? Those are things that break down the ability for us to do something together. It's greed and gossip and adultery. It's these laws who, who, if we didn't follow them, our kind of society itself would break apart, but certainly the institution of the church. And the church is an institution supposed to be set apart from other things. And, And to all you just said, um, and to what Kyle said earlier, like, when should you opt out when a church can no longer kind of perform its function? Like, like you said, that function was given by God. The, the, um, structure was given by God, a plurality of elders that expresses itself in different ways, but the structure is given. And my guess is that at East side, you guys have not only enshrined or defined your mission, but there's also a way to hold people accountable within that. That's thoroughly biblical. And there's ways to change things if you need to change things, right? Um, that, that, that any member can come and ask questions and say, hey, is this biblical? Is it not? There's places for, you know, uh, uh, you guys can change bylaws because elders get together, all that. There's ways to kind of reform, I guess. And so, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Kyle. Were you saying something? No, no, no. I was just agreeing with you. I was saying that's exactly right. Yeah. And so I guess one of the ways to maybe think about this from a Christian, you know, first maybe coming to thinking about our churches, but then denominations, and then maybe outside of that, is just to say, how should we posture ourselves? I think within the church, as I look and forecast out in 2024, you know, Sayers, by this point, a lot of people have listened to it. We've referenced it here on on the podcast, but he, he had a podcast on Rebuilders and talked about, he was forecasting 2024 and talked about moving into the age of, of anger or outrage. And so my prayer really for our church and for y'all's churches is unity. That's what I've been thinking of. To, to go back to your point, Adam, um, a, a minute ago, uh, that, that we would be unified, a unified people. Um, and, and so I guess maybe that's my question is how can we, how can we position ourselves for change where change needs to happen? And how can we position ourselves for unity, um, in an age that's going to be really easily divided and outraged? I don't know if anybody has thoughts on that. I mean, it, it goes back to the, my one thought that I'm just teasing out I think think thinking about that distinction between um, individual failure and institutional drift from a theological perspective, I feel like 
resources that we have um, as believers to help us wade in those waters is like uh, we know that sin and depravity is a real is a real thing in our world. And so um, we don't have to be as surprised when confronted by it. And I also, um, I, I wonder alongside that, even as we we talk about the distrust in institutions, I wonder what even exacerbates that is the like inflated trust in the individual. Um, whereas if we had a more, I think, sober-minded view of one another and our leaders and understood, um, um, yeah, just the uh, the humanity and, and the proclivity that we have to, to sin, that postures us then to ask better questions, not of like uh, either perfect institutions without failure or no institutions, but rather, hey, how do we make sure that we outline, you know, well thought out functioning institutions? And then how will we account for um, when individuals fail? Not if, because we know that humanity is messy. Whenever mm-hmm. you get a conglomerate of people trying to do anything, things go wrong. Mm. And it's a matter of, I think, even as we judge our institutions, it's like, okay, do we have proper mechanisms in place where when these things arise, we can address them and move forward and be able to continue with the mission? Um, and I think, like I say, especially within the church, we have um, the resources and the theological framework in order to do that biblically um, so that uh, we're able to not only handle those who do fail, but also be able to um, restore them in the faith uh, without them just being completely discarded as, you know, the cancel culture would have us do, um, but also be able to protect the integrity of the uh, of the institution as it seeks to um, do its goal, which is the Great Commission. Mm. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I do have a thought. Um, I'm preaching on Romans 14 um, this week. Romans 13, 14, 15, 16 really are about, okay, if Romans 1 through 11 is what is the gospel, Romans 12 through 16 is like, what is the impact of the gospel? And Mm. 13 and 14 and 15 specifically are about like, how does this play out in institutional life? And Mm. he talks about government in there. Uh, He talks about uh, the way that we are to behave in cultural settings. And in 14, he's dealing with institutional life, right? He's dealing with the Jewish dietary customs in conversation with Gentile Christians, this church in Rome. And Romans 14, uh, verse 19 is a great just one sentence summary for how we can pursue unity and avoid unrighteous anger. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Mm. Like there are areas of conviction and there are areas of command and being wise enough to distinguish between what is an area of conviction and an area of command is the way that we can pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And if you don't think you're sober-minded enough to know the distinction, then don't talk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's what the Proverbs say. Just like ask some questions, be silent. But if you are somebody who is convictional to the point of you're certain about everything, then guess what? You're not convictional, you're dogmatic. Mm-hmm. And if you are so curious as to be convictional about nothing, guess what? You're not really curious. You're not really open-minded. You're really just decidedly undecided. And mm. I would just say uh, this year, like every year, uh, twenty. but you know, this being an election year and a bunch of just conversations that are going to be happening in the life of institutions broadly and churches specifically, I think it's really wise to say, let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let's keep the main thing the main thing is probably how my dad would say it. Mm. Um, And let's know the difference between what is an area of conviction and what's an area of command and be clear about those things. 
That's really yeah. Good. I want to make clear too that I do think if somebody has been hurt by an individual and they blame the institution, I I can empathize with that. Yeah. I can understand That's that like really you good. associate um, a, a pastor with the whole church or a employee with the entire organization yes. or however you want to say it. They because in some ways they are an ambassador for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that we find it in our heart to also be gracious and forgiving and mend something and repair something that needs to be repaired. I also want to acknowledge that some people are hurt by institutions. There yes. may be an institutional decision that is harmful or hurtful or an institutional decision to cover something up or not address something that is a problem. That does yeah. mean, uh, to Kyle's point earlier, there are times where you have to or should leave an institution. If a Christian institution is not following the Bible, I, I would say you can stay and try to reform it. But I would also understand if you say, I need to go. Yes. And so if you have been hurt by either an individual or institution, I think you can also find, to Kyle's point earlier, you can also find healing in an individual or an institution, ultimately in Christ, but to find someone who can help you, love you. There are organizations that are built around doing that, and there are individuals that are built around doing that. I don't think we throw out the baby with the bathwater and saying, well, it's because institutions are inherently evil and give room for power to be wielded poorly. But rather, there are people that will pervert things or institutions that are groups of people or or off track, um, you know, corporations or institutions that will make mistakes. But we don't throw out people altogether because the solution is not going to be isolationism. The solution mm-hmm. is not going to be individualism because you will find just as many problems in your own heart <laughs> as you will in an institution. So the solution has to be pointing people back to Christ and saying, hey, we want to be part of his kingdom. Isn't that the language Christ used over and over again? Like, hey, there's a different kingdom mm. and it's not like these earthly kingdoms. And while Romans does say, like, I've established these governments and while the New Testament does establish his church and God has a people and a family. Uh, ultimately, we are God's people because he's the Heavenly Father, because he's given us a king in Jesus. And that's where we're going to find our hope and our healing. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from the Good Podcast Company. Be sure to check the show notes to connect with us and our guests. See you next time.